So across these basically like G-forces, thermal and plasma effects, it's very difficult to simulate basically all three of those on the ground at the same time. You can do any one of those sort of individually to test out a particular subsystem, but if you want to combine all three in a flight-like environment, really the only way to do that is to re-enter at Mach 25 through the atmosphere. All players, low down, active, hold by 1327. Post <laughs> Okay, welcome to the merge. We make sense of defense in an enjoyable way. Today, I've got Jake helping me with co hosting duties. And as you know, we continue to stretch and explore some new topics. Today is definitely going to be one for the history books for us because we're going to talk about drugs in space uh, with a tech company. And to do that, Jake, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest? Yeah, our guest is uh, Delian, the co-founder of Varda Space and a partner at Founders Fund. Sweet. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining. Can you give us a little bit about your background? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, you know, rewinding, uh, you know, back to college, I'd say I studied computer science at MIT originally back in the day, uh, got tempted by the world of Silicon Valley and startups. And so uh, ultimately ended up dropping out basically halfway through uh, my sophomore year. I uh, started my first company, which was in the, you know, sort of uh, digital health space. It was like a workflow EMR tool for autism therapists. Uh, originally got awarded the Teal Fellowship and then also, you know, went through, uh, you know, Y Combinator uh, and, you know, built the company up to call it like ramen profitability and managed to raise a small seed round, but never really grew fast enough to be able to raise sort of follow on financing. So after about three and a half, four years, uh, we ended up selling basically uh, to one of our clients. Uh, then briefly had a little stopover at another uh, startup uh, called Teespring. I was the VP of consumer slash growth there. Uh, and then now for the past sort of six and a half years, I've been on the venture side of things. Uh, you know, part of why I originally got tempted into sticking around in venture is uh, because I'd always had this long time sort of personal fascination with aerospace. And uh, at least in, you know, Silicon Valley traditionally, if I looked at my role models that had managed to have a large impact in space, uh, it was people that had sort of made it big in like normal tech and then switched to aerospace. So anybody from like Jurvetson to Chamon, Elon, et cetera, all of them sort of follow that career path. And so I thought that that was the only sort of career path that was available to me to have impact in aerospace, given that I wasn't that interested in being an IC engineer at SpaceX, like some of my friends from MIT were. But then, yeah, 23, 24, I realized, uh, you know, sort of because the uh, barriers of entry had lowered so much in aerospace, uh, I could instead actually go join, uh, you know, Vinod Kosa's firm, Coastal Ventures, and they would actually allow me to invest in aerospace, you know, then and kickstart that sort of, you know, career in aerospace, not just as an IC engineer, but getting to combine sort of technical plus business. And so I decided to stick around in venture uh, after about two years at Coastal Ventures, got recruited by Founders Fund, where I've now been for about four and a half years. Uh, and I'd always had this particular thesis within, you know, sort of aerospace around in-space manufacturing uh, that I've been really fascinated with. Uh, and it finally felt like it was time for that thesis's time to shine, let's say, in uh, Q4 2019, when a Falcon 9 rocket launched and landed for the first time four times in a row, uh, which to me felt like the sort of marker of, okay, you know, reusability is no longer just a theoretical thing that they're doing a handful of times. This is now something that is going to matter impact you know sort of launch economics and so now is the time to start an in-space manufacturing company uh, that will then get to coast off of increased you know sort of cadence and decreased costs um, and so originally, you know, started off in Q4 2019, Q120, sort of exploring what is now Varda as an investment thesis. Uh, ultimately, you know, realized after six months, all the various players that I talked to, 30 plus different companies, just didn't have the right DNA or approach. And so COVID hits, I have a lot more free time on my hands, uh, on my hands given that Peter Thiel basically told everybody at Founders Fund to, you know, pause investing. And I realized, hey, 
you know, uh, I like building companies. Founders Fund is a place that uh, likes to incubate companies. Here's this thesis that, you know, I think can be, you know, pretty impactful to the world and nobody else is really building. And so uh, this is sort of the perfect confluence of factors to justify the, you know, sort of extreme opportunity cost of, uh, you know, building, building a company. Uh, and so, you know, in some ways, kicking, dragging and screaming, realized that I had to start Varda. Otherwise, uh, nobody else is going to. Wow. Hold on. There, that's a lot to unpack for our listeners. So before we dig into Varda, I just want to highlight your LinkedIn profile says you claim your MIT and it says degree dropout computer science. <laughs> and I think you also had a plug at one point as the world's first space drugs and arms dealer on your LinkedIn profile. Uh, um, Twitter bio and it's still on there. Oh, Twitter, your Twitter bio. Yeah, okay. For those listeners, you're not listening to us on uh, on Fast Forward. Uh, he's been known to listen to his audiobooks at three times speed. I can't comprehend things at three times speed. So there's a lot to unpack there, though. Founders Fund, Y Combinator, Peter Thiel. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff there for people who don't uh, aren't tracking. Those are kind of very good pedigrees in the in the investing tech investing side. So as an entrepreneur and then as a investor, your co-workers with Trey Stevens over there, co-founder of Andrel and a partner at Founders Fund. You guys are kind of walking the same path a little bit, huh? Yeah, obviously, you know, Trey's had a lot more, you know, sort of success, uh, you know, than I have, but, uh, you know, definitely he's been a, you know, sort of significant uh, inspiration and mentor. Um, you know, I don't think Varda would exist if not for sort of pre-existing proof of somebody being able to relatively recently incubate something within Founders Fund while continuing, you know, sort of to invest. Peter had obviously incubated Palantir back when the firm was first started. Uh, uh, effectively, it was an incubation. Uh, but, you know, since then, there hadn't really been anything. And that was, you know, in roughly 2003, four uh, versus, you know, Andrew was in, you know, sort of 2016. So there's sort of a 13-year gap versus sort of since, you know, we uh, incubated Andrew, there's now been a relatively consistent pace of Founders Fund partners um, uh, incubating companies. But yeah, very much so, you know, have learned a lot, you know, from, uh, you know, Trey and the, you know, sort of whole team uh, at Andrew. Obviously, we're a distinctly different company. You know, they are sort of trying to make an next generation defense prime and, you know, sort of defense first versus I've described Varda as, you know, sort of the classical dual use where we, you know, pursue both markets uh, and we generally only pursue defense markets when it's something that perfectly aligns with the pre-existing commercial roadmap that we have. Yeah, we're going to get into that because there's a, a fascinating overlap in your story. And, and you mentioned it, something about pharmaceuticals and medical, and you kind of uh, put that on pause and then COVID hit because you co-founded Varda. So tell me how you met your co-founders. What's the backstory there? Yeah, so, uh, you know, rewinding. So Q4 2019, I start pursuing Varda as an investment thesis. Uh, and I'd been familiar with some of the companies in the space for quite some time, given that it was an area that I was really fascinated with. But it was the first time where it really made sense to, you know, sort of aggressively go and meet with everyone. And so I spent about six months basically meeting everything from you know, researchers within top 20 biopharma that had published research from the ISS, companies that had started to support some of those researchers, some of the independent companies that even raised some venture capital to try and tackle these problems. And yeah, after about six months, unfortunately came away with the realization that because the sort of historical launch costs made it so expensive, everybody had only operated in space manufacturing inside of a government run station. And all these companies had sort of built, let's say habits, economics, you know, sort of customer use cases uh, and, you know, internal, you know, sort of team DNA and culture. And Entirely focused on that, where their you know sort of only muscle that they had was how to operate within the ISS, how to operate with NASA funding, and how to publish scientific papers versus bringing actual you know sort of products to market. And so uh, I basically you know sort of visited the last of those companies literally like third week of February 2020, um, you know right right before COVID. I think it was literally my last you know sort of uh, you know airplane uh, trip. And then when COVID hits, Peter Thiel went into you know sort of a pretty bearish mode. And so as a fund, we decided to really stop deploying for about six months. And so I had a lot more free time 
time on my hands. And in May 2020, one of my very close mentors and you know a general partner at Founders Fund, Keith Darboy, uh, you know sort of took me out on this you know whatever distance outdoor hike, and we're kind of asking him like you know hey what the hell should I be doing with all my free time? Like, I don't know what to you know, do when I don't have a job. I'm somebody who's, you know, sort of highly ambitious and likes to, you know, be as productive as possible. And his feedback was like, you know, well, Dalian, you, you work at a firm that, you know, is open to incubating companies. You've built companies before. What better time than, you know, right now where you have a lot of, you know, sort of mental free space than to, you know, sort of build a company. And I remember replying to him saying, you know, um, you know, if there's one thing that I learned from my first company is I should only start things in spaces that I'm extremely, you know, passionate about. And uh, the only thing that I, you know, have a deep passion for, you know, is aerospace. Unlike, you know, my first company, Digital Health, which is a fascination of mine, but I wouldn't call it, you know, sort of a lifelong passion. Uh, and ultimately, I think that's part of why my first company didn't work. Uh, and so I told him, I was like, well, if I were to build something, it would be an aerospace company. And then the moment that I said that, the next thought within my head was like, well, I wouldn't just build a random aerospace company. I'd build the thesis that I believe in the most that nobody else is tackling. And so I was like, well, I'd build an in-space manufacturing company. And so that was roughly May 2020. And that is what then, you know, sort of sent me on a journey basically that summer of going from, oh, I should go do this to, oh, crap, I need to go to do this. Uh, and so I basically spent sort of the next, you know, three months kind of um, ideating, figuring out maybe some of those people that I chatted with in the past, would any of them sort of make sense as co-founders? And then also thinking through what would this sort of ideal core DNA of the founding team look like? And I realized one of the things that I'd never really thought about was what would be the infrastructure necessary to operate an in-space manufacturing company independent of the ISS, given that those the whole core thesis. And that was the DNA that I found lacking in any of these pre-existing teams. I had this sudden realization where I was like, oh, that's actually the DNA that I need to focus on a lot more in the founding team, more so than like finding somebody that's worked on this problem before. And uh, ultimately, if you think about what does it take to make a free-flying manufacturing satellite and the skill sets that are necessary, you know, for that, one part of it is for sure just sort of the standard skill set that you see in something like a Starlink, right? You need somebody they can manufacture, you know, satellites, radios, solar panels, batteries, you know, uh, RCS thrusters, torque rods, etc. But the one part that was particularly unique about you know the business model is you have to return things back from space. So that means that you would need to ideally make a very low cost mass manufacturable reentry capsule. And so as I started to think through, well, who would even have the DNA for that? The only sort of commercial reentry capsule at that time that had been built pre Starliner test at Boeing at the time it was only really SpaceX. And so I had this sudden realization where I was like, you know, I can definitely find in-space manufacturing co-founders, but I really need to find like a re-entry co-founder. And that re-entry co-founder almost certainly needs to be the CEO. Now, thankfully, having gone to MIT, I had a lot of friends uh, that had uh, gone and worked at SpaceX. And so I then spent most of, you know, sort of July and August of 2020 mining through that professional network, basically asking people who in their network had worked on Dragon, had leadership experience from SpaceX, but also had, you know, entrepreneurial instincts. You know, I explicitly had learned from my first company that I'm not the right, you know, sort of CEO for a business. I think I'm a great president, chairman. I'm good at fundraising public comms, but there's a lot of the CEO job that I don't think I'm great at. Uh, and so I would need a co-founder that like knew what a Series A was already. I'd obviously would know a lot more about a Series A than they would, but I can't be like totally teaching them from scratch. Pretty consistently, the you know sort of top of everyone's list uh, was you know my now co-founder uh, Will Brewey. And so I uh, finally met him uh, third week of August after you know trying a few different ways uh, to get in touch with him. Pitched him you know on the idea and why I thought he'd be. The the perfect CEO. And it didn't really take much convincing. I think even he had the realization he never thought about in-space manufacturing, but I think he quickly realized, right, this is the exact type of business where you want engineering leader that has re-entry experience and is entrepreneurial. And it turns out, you know, if you're a CEO that is world-class in those, you know, sort of three things, the best business you could possibly build is, you know, an in-space manufacturing business. So um, yeah, that was uh, effectively how I met, you know, my now co-founder, Rui. I remember when you posted a bar napkin picture on Twitter of a re-entry capsule. And I think I DM'd you. I said, are you making Z-Bland? Is, is that the idea? Uh, and I, I guess I was close, but I wasn't quite right. 
Yeah, uh, you know, uh, in the grand scheme of things, we did. Um, you know, we we were always thinking about what is the long term of this, you know, business. And it was obvious even from the earliest days that biopharmaceuticals were just like the the, the the highest margin physical product, the most revenue per unit mass, and that's obviously the biggest constraint in space. And so it was, and it was the place that had the most scientific proof on the International Space Station. So it was the natural place to start. But uh, in the early days of the company, we did not think that you know a top twenty biopharma, given that it was unlikely you were going to do this fully from scratch uh, and bring drugs to market yourself, you need to work in partnership with Top 20 Biopharma, the likelihood that they would you know, sort of pay a lot of attention to a band of thieves, seed stage, you know, aerospace company was pretty unlikely. And so when we actually started the company, the sort of like, you know, roadmap and path that we pitched to investors was like, hey, we're going to start off in fiber optics, which explicitly sort of lower margin, a smaller market than biopharmaceuticals. And then over time, you know, as we sort of gain traction, momentum, improve points, and it can actually build into a larger company, we can then build the muscle for interfacing with, you know, larger enterprises like biopharma. And what ended up happening, and we can obviously, you know, dive into this more, was that about six to eight months into the company, we had this realization where this dual use defense use case around, you know, reentry hypersonic testing was going to be a much nearer term market in terms of, uh, you know, revenue recognition and much better unit economics than fiber optics was ever going to be. And it was large enough that it could allow us to get to, uh, you know, scale where top 20 biopharma could take us seriously and we could afford to build out more of a biopharma, both technical and BD team. And so Z-Blaine and fiber optics was uh, the original plan for call it like the first, you know, sort of stepping stone, hot swapped out by uh, you know this dual use defense use case and that allowed us to much more quickly go to that envision of uh, biopharmaceuticals so you were right uh, at the time but I was wrong uh, in how things would play out <laughs> what is the name Varda where does that come from uh, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, some, there's been a handful of times in life when I've had to come up with a name for something, whether it be, you know, pets or projects or, you know, names. And sometimes it takes, you know, months or years to figure out the right name. And sometimes it literally comes to you in like less than 10 seconds. So it's funny, as I was uh, working on this, you know, finally in August 2020, it was like starting to, you know, mature. I think this was maybe about a week before, you know, I was getting introduced to my co-founder. So I was pretty committed to that point that I wanted to do it, but was still sort of looking for the right people. I thought about, you know, what would the ideal name, you know, sort of of this project be? And I thought I'd, you know, sort of stick to the um, historical precedent of Lord of the Rings themed uh, you know, names, partially because there, you know, was some precedent in any incubations at Founders Fund that weren't Lord of the Rings named, themed, named, uh, did not work out too well uh, versus, you know, sort of Palantir and Anderil did. And so I thought, you know, sort of why tempt fate? Uh, so I was, I've never really watched Lord of the Rings. I've never read any of the books. So I was like, okay, uh, let me figure out, you know, what would I, you know, possibly name it after? And so I literally just Googled like Lord of the Rings, space, you know, cosmic manufacturing. Uh, and uh, the first thing that popped up uh, was uh, Varda, which is uh, this uh, elvish queen. Uh, that's in one of like the like you know appendix books or auxiliary books. It's not in like the you know sort of main genre, uh, but she's this elvish queen that is known for basically using the morning dew uh, to manufacture the stars in the sky. Uh, and so I was like, oh, that's perfect. Like she's literally you know you know she's manufacturing stars rather than fiber optics or pharmaceuticals, but like close enough. And then I went to GoDaddy and the dot com was available, and I was like, cool. So literally from like I need to name this company to knowing that the dot com was available and knowing the name was like I think approximately like thirty five seconds. Uh, and then you know we bought the dot com. <laughs> like two or three weeks later once we you know had uh, decided on the founding team um so uh yeah that was the original impetus for the name and then you've got me wearing my uh today i'm wearing actually the old school uh logo this is our logo for the first three or four months before we could afford a graphic designer <laughs> that was not a planted question i had no idea where that was going to go uh so that delivered that was great <laughs> i had no idea <laughs> if it had been 2023 it would have been like at least 50 percent more efficient because you just would have used chat gpt to come up with the name right that's true. That's true. I, it'd be interesting to actually go through and see if uh, I'll maybe do this right after this call and see if I uh, prompt ChatGPT in the same ways that I prompted Google, whether or not it actually comes up with the name Varda. 
for the listeners, if you're uh, w- watching us on YouTube, there's a picture here I'm going to put up of what this capsule looks like. The best way that I could describe it, looking at the pictures online, it's a it's like a subscale, like Apollo reentry vehicle type capsule. Is that that shaped about right? Yeah, we explored a variety of different, uh, you know, outer mold lines uh, for the reentry capsule. Ultimately, we ended up deciding on you know, the mold line that you're, you know, sort of uh, representing, which is this like this 45 degree, you know, conical, uh, conical uh, shape. It was a combination of both, yeah, some data from the Apollo days as well as, um, you know, Stardust, which is uh, the, one of the more recent um, uh, or the most recent, let's say, NASA asteroid sample return mission uh, that had a relatively similar outer mold line, and so there was some reentry data uh, around that. And it's about like a meter across, something like that, three feet yeah. diameter. Yeah, it's about a meter diameter. Uh, it's basically like a you know half sphere on top, and then a cone basically you know sort of underneath. And so the diameter of both the sphere and the cone are uh, a meter. It roughly weighs ninety to one hundred kilograms, basically wet mass. So that's you know sort of fully loaded up with payload, pharmaceutical ingredients, etc. Uh, of which about forty kilograms of that uh, is uh, pharmaceutical ingredients. So for those of us who are on the uh, the imperial system. If we do the, the conversion, that's like, what, 220 pounds, something like that? Something like that. I admit I have not thought about the Imperial system in a long time. Aerospace. So I think it was interesting. You said that, uh, you know, you got your, your inspiration when you saw the Falcon 9 uh, do its consecutive uh, land and reuse missions. Your capsule that we we're just describing was launched on a Falcon 9 rocket last month, right? It's in space as we speak. Is that right? Yeah, it's been cool, actually, over the course of the company's lifetime, the sort of thesis that we predicated, you know, well, both my career on, but then also the company on in some ways, uh, was that, you know, sort of cadence and cost of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, reentry or sorry, launch, were going to significantly improve. And so when the company was started, Falcon 9s were launching roughly every three and a half weeks. Uh, this year, on average, it's been every three and a half days. My prediction for the end of this year is that we'll be at a run rate of every two days. And by end of next year, it'll be roughly, you know, sort of every day. Uh, and so it's been really great to see that thesis play out. Uh, and yeah, we got to launch on a Falcon nine rocket uh, out of Vandenberg Air, uh, Space Force Base uh, on June 12th. Uh, so about, you know, a month and uh, 17 days ago, uh, I think 42 days ago now. Um, uh, at roughly, you know, three o'clock, uh, you know, in the afternoon. Uh, it was really exciting. I got to be there, uh, you know, uh, in Lompoc on the coast uh, and watch her. You know, uh, I got a glimpse of, let's say, you know, the rocket and definitely heard the rocket. <laughs> Since it's in Leo right now and it's, it's going to be coming back, we'll talk about that in a minute. But have you uh, have you tried to plot the orbit and actually get out a telescope and watch you watch your baby circling the Earth at seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour? That's, uh, you know, uh, it's, I guess, potentially possible with a telescope. These things are definitely pretty damn small. There was an OSINT uh, account that showed a, like, one pixel, you know, sort of uh, tracking image uh, of us and even showed us uh, passing by one of the other satellites that was on the same mission as Falcon 9 with us, given that we had a relatively, you know, sort of similar orbit um, to them. Yeah, I have not attempted with, a, you know, my naked eye. It's definitely, it's a pretty small vehicle. Uh, and unlike the Starlink ones that are, you know, sort of uh, in a train, so it's somewhat easier to spot since you have like 15 of them back to back, probably wouldn't be the easiest thing to spot. It's up in orbit right now, and it is manufacturing ritonavir as we speak. Is that true? And what, is, uh, what does ritonavir do? Uh, yeah, so it manufactured uh, ritonavir, uh, you know, I'm forgetting the exact date now, but it was a Friday uh, right after July 4th, so maybe this is like Friday, July 7th or something like that. So uh, it was a 27-hour uh, manufacturing process, effectively crystallizing ritonavir. We decided to use ritonavir for the first mission as a demonstration because it's a relatively famous small molecule uh, antiviral drug. It came out in the mid-90s as the first ever antiviral treatment for uh, HIV. And after being phenomenally successful uh, on the market for about two years, uh, uh, there's a sudden drug 
drop in clinical outcomes with patients uh, as the FDA came in to investigate they discovered that there was a sort of net mu crystalline form form B form 2 uh, that had formed in the manufacturing lines there was a far more sort of metastable crystalline form and so it basically spread and took over sort of like Cas9 took over the world and the FDA ultimately had to recall uh, the drug after two years and obviously billions of dollars of uh, lost revenue. There have still since been sort of terrestrial solutions for ritonavir in terms of filtering techniques to get back to that original you know, sort of form one. Um, and it's actually uh, a one part of the two part treatment of a Paxlovid of, of COVID that's called Paxlovid. So it is technically back on the market today. Point being, uh, we chose it because it had this very famous crystalline issue that if microgravity had been a commercially available solution in the mid-90s, we potentially could have solved, you know, immediately and allowed the drug to basically, you know, stay on the market. And so it was a sort of perfect marketing case study of, you know, a lot of our customers are deeply familiar with the Ritonavir case study. Uh, They're familiar with basically why microgravity could have been a solution. And so it allows us to, you know, sort of demonstrate uh, with something that is, you know, quite prominent. Uh, We also, interestingly enough, you know, in some of our, you know, sort of flight preparations in uh, October of, uh, September, October of last year, Year, did end up actually, you know, discovering the first new form, uh, crystalline form of ritonavir for the first time in 24 years. Did get, you know, some published, uh, you know, papers uh, around that. Uh, and so this particular mission, rather than actually doing either of the form one or form two, uh, is explicitly aiming for form three, the new form that we discovered, and you know, sort of uh, potentially showing a net new form of ritonavir. So uh, it was about a yeah, 27-hour manufacturing campaign. The way you can think about it is you're basically taking something that is previously in a sort of powder, disparate, you know, sort of discrete form or a liquid form and basically turning it into a solid-state form. For this first mission, I like to describe it as if you compare a biopharma lab to like a kitchen, you have a ton of different appliances there. This very first mission for sure is us just demonstrating a toaster with like some plain wheat bread and, you know, toasting it. And over time, we for sure want to build the convection ovens and the blenders and a ton of other, you know, appliances. But for this first one, we basically literally just like melted ritonavir, cooled it down at a very particular rate, got it to crystallize, and then now we're looking to bring those, you know, sort of crystalline structures back home. So it's not like a month-long, you know, sort of manufacturing process. It was about 27 hours, which has already happened. And so at this point, we're actually just waiting to, uh, you know, re-enter to bring uh, the finished goods back home. The words that you strung together to describe it, it was like the the most badass, like, uh, high school science project ever. We just threw darts. So we have rockets in a capsule up in the space, that's spinning around the earth with a toaster size autonomous pharmaceutical lab that's using crystals and microgravity to build a HIV drug. Did yes. I get all that right? Yeah, that is, uh, that is all correct. <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> when you make a new crystalline form of a drug, can you patent it? And do you need new FDA approval to use that drug as a treatment? How does it sort of impact the regulatory framework? Yeah, so there are different two different types of patents uh, in relation uh, to these types of net new forms. There's what is known as a form pra- patent, which is the specific, basically, crystalline structure, uh, as well as a you know sort of process patent, which is basically how did you uh, create that form. Uh, now, specifically with Ritonavir Form 3, I did mention that we basically discovered this first new form for the first time in 24 years. Funnily enough, AbbVie, which uh, is the current owner of Ritonavir, happened to have an internal research team that basically published their paper on Form 3 literally about a week before us, showing that they basically discovered the first new form uh, as well. So they technically own the Form IP. We did uh, publish right after them, given that we pointed out some technical flaws uh, in their paper. They had missed some prior analyses where there was actually a Japanese team about a decade earlier that did 
did actually stumble across this form. They just didn't realize what they were looking at. They were confused. They were basically like, wait, this isn't form one or form two. Something must be wrong. And so technically there is sort of prior art on both of us. And the process that Varda used to create that form three was a more efficient process than what Abby uh, had discovered internally. And so technically uh, today, Varda does have a process patent on Bertanavir, and we're basically the only owner of IP on Bertanavir outside of AbbVie. And depending on obviously how this you know, sort of uh, uh, first mission goes, if we do find a completely net new form, we may get form IP. If our process somehow yields something that's even more efficient in terms of results than what uh, either us or Abby have done, we may get even you know, sort of net new process IP, but that would all uh, require um, you know, anal analysis on the ground. Uh, or over time, for sure, we wanna get better instrumentation on board uh, in the satellite. Uh, but for now, we definitely uh, need to bring uh, the pharmaceutical crystals back to study them. In relation to bringing the actual drug to market, uh, it depends on drug. If it's something that's never gone through, it's, if it's an NCE, so a new chemical entity, you know, you still have to go through the sort of standard clinical trials. So a lot of the you know compounds that we're working on with partners that we can't announce yet are more you know sort of NCEs, uh, more so than they are sort of live on the market drugs. If you're taking a live on the market drug and uh, showing that you've created a net new crystalline form, for example, like what uh, Merck demonstrated on the ISS with their uh, monoclonal antibody biologic Keytruda, there you go through what's known as a 505B2 process where you're uh, effectively just showing that is you know sort of bio net similar to the pre-existing sort of crystalline form. Effectively, there's no sort of toxic effects and that you're getting pure beneficial effects, for example, like improved solubility or improved uh, side effects or you know improved uh, you know shelf life or stability. And so the uh, burden of proof when you're basically reformulating is what it's called or finding a new crystalline structure of a drug that is already on the market, the burden of proof is definitely far, far lower than a net new compound. But to date, Varda's engagement with top 20 biopharma is mostly on net new compounds, given that they're clinical drugs on the market are sort of the golden geese and they're not quite willing to you know, work with any more nascent platform like Varda uh, on those. But over time, we expect that we'll also get enough, let's say, experience and get enough trust from top 20 biopharma where we'll start to work on live drugs as well. I love that if you can't publish first, you publish second and point out all the mistakes in the first paper. That is 100% the way to do it. It was a very funny two weeks because we went from like extreme elation of like, holy shit, we just found the first new form uh, of Ritonavir in 24 years. And we like extensively studied. We found that one Japanese paper, but it was clear that they like didn't you know, properly identify it. And so we were very sure that like, you know, we were going to have this like groundbreaking paper. And then literally as we were waiting for basically like peer review, the Abby paper came out. And so then all of a sudden, like everybody on the team was like super depressed. It was like, oh my God, this is going to be our big break, you know, because we were like thinking that before we were going to have to wait until flight to actually, you know, be able to get any sort of real biopharma breakthroughs. So then there's like this extreme depression. And then as we were reading the Abby paper, we were like, oh my God, we have now since made, you know, great friends with this particular researcher at Abby. So this is not at all meant to, you know, sort of critique uh, him, but we at least noticed a handful of flaws that we could point out that would then still make it a very compelling paper. And we noted that our process was still an improved process. So there was, there was still going to be, you know, some IP. So uh, we were able to get that in the um, uh, ACS uh, journal, which is one of the most prominent, basically small molecule crystallization, you know, sort of journals. So it was great that you know we sort of went through this roller coaster ride over the course of you know two weeks that we basically had to keep very secret because we can't talk about this stuff given that until it's published and you have the you know ip filed you can't talk about it but there is a lot of extreme emotions let's say during that two-week process <laughs> so varda has their vehicle their satellite in orbit right now it just came out today as we're recording this that it's been delayed coming back and it has nothing to do with nasa or anything it has to do with the FAA, which I did not know until a few hours ago. Can you ex explain what's going on? 
Yeah, we for sure have a few different partners, right? It's not necessarily entirely, entirely, you know, the FA or anything like that. You know, there's sort of three major partners that we have to, you know, get aligned uh, in order to re-enter properly. It is uh, both Rocket Lab, who are responsible basically for the deorbit burn, basically the rocket engine that brings us into the atmosphere and drops off the re-entry capsule. There's the FAA that both has to give us basically uh, the re-entry license, so Part 450, this net new regulatory process that they've created, and get comfort with basically... Um, you know, sort of potential hazards that are associated with our reentry, as well as within the FAA, the Air Traffic Control Office, ATO, that would basically need to publish some NOTAMs and TFRs, basically, uh, you know, rerouting some commercial air traffic to avoid our reentry. And then basically the third partner is the military range that we're landing at, the Utah Test and Training Range. So, you know, we've engaged with, you know, all three of these groups basically since the first week of the company and continue to collaborate with them to understand how we can bring this reentry capsule back. You know, sort of all three of them were obviously aware that, you know, we launched the spacecraft and that wouldn't have happened without their awareness and the FAA giving us uh, approval to launch. And we're continuing to collaborate with them to get sort of the final sign off across, you know, sort of all three parties uh, in order to be able to reenter. But, you know, BART is definitely ready and eager to reenter as soon as that alignment has been. How does it land? I've, I've been to the Uter before. It's a, you know, rocky desert airspace in Utah where a lot of fighter training happens. So how's it going to land or what's it going to land on? I guess. Um, rocks. Probably. <laughs> okay. Or dirt. It will land by coming in from space and ripping a parachute. Okay. And then the toaster experiment has been successfully completed and you have the telemetry coming back to earth to show you like, Hey, it's all done. So when you open the capsule and your toaster's broken, it's not a big deal, right? It is highly unlikely that the toaster will be broken in that if you think about what's inside the toaster that needs to stay put, it's basically a bunch of what look like salt crystals. So if you think about it, you know, even if salt rips 10 Gs or goes through a ton of vibration, it's still, you know, salt. The biggest sort of risk to the toaster being broken is the uh, thermal environment so that the, you know, sort of salt melts back into a liquid. And uh, the most difficult, actually, thermal constraint is not during the reentry process, given that we have an ablative heat shield, which by default basically pulls away the kinetic energy that gets transferred into the thermal energy and gets pulled away and ablated. Uh, the most difficult problem is if the reentry capsule happens to land somewhere in the UTTR and it gets like stuck in a tree or like lodged in a canyon somewhere or uh, in a non-ideal sort of part of the base, and it takes sort of longer than call it eight to 12 hours to recover, the you know, sort of toaster setting there on the desert floor in Utah uh, in you know, August can actually cause enough you know, sort of thermal heat to potentially melt the crystals on board. The crystals are hermetically sealed from the rest of the vehicle, but over time there is still you know, uh, somewhat imperfect insulation. If the reentry capsule survives, which is also a question, it could just completely melt. But if the reentry capsule survives and the parachute deploys, it is unlikely that the toaster is going to be broken in half. That's a, a lot of uh, extreme heat, pressure, Gs, destruction, hopefully not destruction. <laughs> yeah, the reentry capsule rips about 13 Gs, and the uh, temperature experience at the surface of the heat shield is hotter than the surface of the sun. So it definitely gets through some pretty you know extreme environments, which is also you know why it's an interesting test bed for certain hypersonic uh, use cases within the DoD. Because there's no humans on board, we don't have to worry about a comfortable ride on the way down. So at reentry, it's traveling at about Mach 25. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, roughly Mach 25. And the sort of short-term revenue opportunity here for VARDA, as you mentioned, is doing some hypersonic testing for the Air Force. Can you give us a little background on what that looks like? 
I think the best way to explain it is through an analogy of, you know, think about Boeing with their 747s trying to build, you know, basically airplanes without a wind tunnel, where your only way of actually basically testing whether or not your design works is by going and flying the full design in a real environment. We probably wouldn't have as advanced of airplanes. A lot of what allowed airplane technology to advance was that we could test certain subsystems, wing shapes in a, an environment that was relatively net similar to what they would ultimately end up operating in, right? And that's why ultimately we were able to create some, you know, really impressive vehicles at various speeds. Unfortunately, once you get above like roughly call it Mach 10, 11, 12 or so, the ability to you know simulate a net similar environment on the ground effectively becomes impossible. The reason being there's these sort of three separate major effects that really start to you know amplify, uh, especially since a lot of this stuff is you know related to either the um, the square or the cube of your velocity which is a combination of both, basically, think of it as like G-forces, so similar to how in a 747 you feel turbulence. Obviously, when you're going Mach 25 through the atmosphere, if you experience some slight, you know, slightly lower pressure or an air pocket, it introduces sort of massive G-loads. The second is basically like the thermal environment. So as I mentioned, we experience basically the surface of, you know, the temperature of the sun uh, at the surface, temperatures that are higher than the surface of the sun. And then the third is you're going so fast, you're actually separating the molecules in the atmosphere from one another. Um, think like, you know, nitrogen or oxygen, and you're actually creating positively charged ions that form that fourth state of matter. So no longer solid, liquid, or gas, but it's actually a plasma. And that plasma also, you know, affects the actual flight environment quite significantly. So across these basically like G-forces, thermal, and plasma effects, it's very difficult to simulate basically all three of those on the ground at the same time. You can do any one of those sort of individually to test out a particular subsystem, but if you want to combine all three in a flight-like environment, really the only way to do that is to re-enter at Mach 25 through the atmosphere. And so in summer in 2021, Varda was alerted to the fact that the Air Force was actually basically building an identically sized vehicle with an identical sort of outer mold line. We originally referred to this group within the Air Force as a potential collaboration partner so that we could learn from them about how to design a reentry vehicle. But we quickly recognized that basically this would be actually a very interesting revenue opportunity for us as a way to basically ride share our pharmaceutical clients alongside basically DOD that could basically just use separate parts of the reentry vehicle as sort of a testing mechanism and the manufactured pharmaceuticals could, you know, ride on board. So, you know, the way that I like to describe it is if the Wright brothers needed a, uh, you know, wind tunnel in order to test out their vehicles, as the United States is starting to build up and advance uh, boost glide hypersonic technologies, Varda is effectively the equivalent of that wind tunnel. And so if you want to test out net new heat shield materials, navigation sensors, infrared sensors that allow you to detect adversarial hypersonic vehicles and, you know, sort of guide towards them and, uh, you know, disable them. If you want to uh, test out various wing shapes, these are all things that basically Varda can test at a much faster rate and cheaper than basically, you know, anything else, you know, and much more flight accurate relative to anything else on the planet, especially since we're going to be flying these things anyways for our pharmaceutical production. So it's been really great to see that message resonate. We uh, you sort of stumbled across this use case very unintentionally in uh, summer 2021, about six months after we started the company. And then especially in October 2021, when the Financial Times dropped the previously classified news about the Chinese demonstrating the first ever boost glide hypersonic missile, we had the sudden realization moment at the company where, whoa, we thought the fiber optics was going to be the stepping stone, but no, actually hypersonics is going to be the stepping stone. This is an extremely sort of near-term market for us. And so it's been great to you know, sort of see the team here execute on that opportunity and go from identifying it you know, to, at this point, multitude of contracts across uh, the Air Force, Navy, NASA, all for uh, these you know, sort of hypersonic and uh, re-entry testing uh, use cases. Definitely, we see this as sort of the, the first piece of space infrastructure that the DOD and government parties are interested in, but we think there will be many more as we continue to pursue our commercial development roadmap. So Varda was awarded a $60 million StrapFi contract from the Air Force. That's a strategic funding increase for those who, who aren't tracking. And that's basically a partnered money. So it's half is 
uh, venture capital from industry and then it's matched with the government. And I think that's between Air Force, NASA, and then AFWorks, who's the sponsor of your contract. But so you're basically a $60 million government contract that's probably up there with the youngest company to get a Stratfy that I've that I've heard of, at least. Uh, uh, I believe I we recall. are the youngest company to have gotten, especially the full $60 million Stratfy by a decent margin. I think the next sort of youngest was about three and a half years old when they got it. Uh, we definitely you know, executed on it quickly. It was that we identified the opportunity at six months in, but it definitely took another 18 months to go from identifying it to getting it across the line. But that's still, congratulations. That's a good feather to have in your cap. That's that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, no credit, obviously, to the you know sort of team that we've managed to you know build here. Definitely takes a uh, it takes a village. But yeah, super thrilled. And you know maybe to touch on for the listeners the way that a stratified program works. You know, as Mike mentioned, thirty million of it is actually our own venture capital dollars that we um, pulled from our Series A, and then the remaining thirty is government dollars. Fifteen million of which comes from AFWorks, the stratified program, and then fifteen million basically comes from the end customers. Uh, and our end customers were uh, several program offices that I can't name uh, within the Air Force as well as NASA. So it was effectively like fifteen, fifteen, and then thirty. And we've already begun, you know, sort of execution on that contract. That contract uh, was, uh, you know, signed and executed, I want to say like late May or maybe early June, roughly time frame. And then uh, we just had uh, the first of the major milestones for that contract this past month, which actually made Varda net cash flow positive uh, in July, which is kind of cool. It, it's kind of a fake metric, but, you know, it's kind of cool. <laughs> Take it. It's exciting. Yeah, take the win when you can get it. It's not free cash flow <laughs> positive. It's not a cruel cash flow positive or anything, but it is cash flow positive. <laughs> 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 you mentioned China's uh, hypersonic boost glide missile as being part of the impetus for the Stratfy and Varda's pursuit of a hypersonic testbed. As a private company, how much do you think about sort of the new space race with China and China-U.S. competition? I said this, uh, you know, even on my Twitter, part of what motivates me to wake up every single day is to ensure that the primary language spoken on the moon is English, not Mandarin. Uh, and that has more to do with, obviously, the, let's say, you know, political regimes within those two countries. I'd prefer for the moon to be a democratic public rather than a genocidal dictatorship. Um, nothing against, you know, I, I do love Mandarin. I took a you know semester or two of it in college, um, but I don't want Xi Jinping in charge of the moon. But ultimately, in order to you know get to that point, you can't rely on state budgets uh, alone to create that type of you know sort of space infrastructure that's necessary to dominate in space. Ultimately, you need to create sort of commercial incentives. Any time in human history, you've had large scale sustained infrastructure. It's been due to you know sort of economic incentives, not just due to you know sort of government and state budgets. And so that was effectively what you know Varda was founded under is to the explicit one liner mission of Varda that we've kept throughout the entire company's life is to expand the economic bounds of humankind. And there's two sort of core parts of that. One is the economic bounds, right? How do you take commercial activity from not just entirely uh, you know, on the Earth's surface, but now take it into low Earth orbit and in a unique way that isn't just using basically, you know, radio communications. So, you know, internet satellites like Starlink or Earth observation like Planet Labs, but something that, you know, eventually will require sort of humans on board and can't entirely, entirely be automated. Our manufacturing stations for a long time will be fully, you know, sort of autonomous. But if you look at like biopharma manufacturing on the ground, even though you have many facilities that are fully automated, still even the best machines once every six months, nine months, once a year, require a human to come in and do maintenance versus business models like Starlink or Planet Labs can pursue their models for a very long period of time. Time without ever you know sort of having humans uh, on board and so the goal is expand the economic bounds and most importantly of humankind and so for sure there will be no humans on board varda stations in the next 
three, four, five years. But over time, as we go from manufacturing satellites that are hundreds of kilograms to thousands of kilograms to tens of thousands of kilograms, eventually the marginal benefit of having a human on board that can actually help with maintenance, this uh, you know robotic station ends up being far greater basically than like the marginal cost. And ideally, Varda will be the first company in human history to send a human to space that actually generates more economic value than it costs to actually you know, sort of have them up there, which is obviously not true today of any you know sort of astronauts or any of the commercial tourism that people are talking about, which is you know mostly a fake market. None of those you know are, are, are true versus I think Varda is that first use case that could be true. And if Varda is then successful, that is what then has downstream implications that enables business models like asteroid mining, like lunar ice mining, that then allow us to establish dominance against the you know sort of Chinese in those domains. And so, yeah, it's obviously a space that I'm deeply passionate about. And while it may seem that Varda is somewhat orthogonal to you know establishing lunar dominance, I'm actually pretty convinced that the best way to beat the Chinese to the moon is to beat the Chinese to commercializing low Earth orbit. There's a lot there. A lot of big shots you're calling. I love it. <laughs> right, so far. <laughs> yeah. You started something with uh, with Jacob Helberg, author of The Wires of War, great book, highly recommend it, all about the tech competition with China. Uh, you started something called the Hill and Valley Forum. Is that right? Am I getting the, the name right? Can you yeah, talk correct. a little bit about that and what your what your goals are? Yeah. Um, so the obviously defense tech community, I think, has really expanded, uh, you know, over the last decade, uh, you know, really originally, you know, honestly, was you know, kicked off in some ways or re-kicked off. Obviously, if you look at the history of Silicon Valley, it was you know, sort of deeply integrated uh, with the defense community, but I think lost its way for quite some time, uh, especially as, you know, we got into this world where we thought it was the sort of end of history. And it turns out that's not really the case. But anyways, you know, sort of the reintegration between Silicon Valley and the defense community was obviously kicked off by, you know, sort of Peter and Palantir in 04, you know, continued to be accelerated by companies. Companies like SpaceX and Android, but that especially in the last three or four years, you know, feels like it's sort of really gone mainstream where it's no longer just billionaire founders starting these types of companies. It's, you know, a much wider swath of people tackling these types of, you know, sort of national security problems within the, you know, lens and culture of uh, Silicon Valley. And so Jacob and I realized that, you know, there was a large enough community now finally and enough interest from both policymakers and acquisition officials within DOD. There needed to be a place where you could actually, you know, have a gathering of these where if you try to do something like Hill and Valley Forum five or six years ago, there just wouldn't be that many policymakers or that many founders that you could basically you know, sort of invite to it. For the first time, there was enough of a critical mass, but we felt that there lacked a stage that you could bring you know, sort of all of those folks um, you know, together into one place. And so we ultimately decided to run a first sort of beta version of this in September, October last year in 22. We're really happy with the results and then decided to you know, scale it up some amount uh, in March of 23 and really happy with how that went. You know, I think we got 20 plus elected officials, 100 plus defense tech founders, CEOs, VCs, et cetera. Both Peter Thiel and Vinod Kosla, you know, gave basically opening remarks alongside Speaker McCarthy. Really, really happy with how that went together and expect to do it on an annual basis, themed after whatever is sort of top of mind for Silicon Valley and DC at the time. So uh, in that particular moment, the night before, we happened to be doing the dinner the night before the uh, TikTok CEO was going to be giving his uh, testimony in front of Congress. And so we kept it very sort of TikTok and China themed, obviously over time as, you know, sort of different issues you know, percolate in these communi- communities, uh, we may you know, sort of uh, alter the theme, but we think we'll be you know, sort of running this uh, on an annual basis and found it to be very, sort of very productive across all sides. Policymakers, you know, sort of finding both companies that represent you know, sort of their interests and the things that they want to pursue, but as well as a meeting ground for policymakers where in some ways, you know, in the post-COVID era, they like, don't get that much time to like, spend with one another and realize, hey, there's actually like a couple of other congressmen interested in the same issue and like, you know, we can align and not feel like I'm, st- I'm the only one sticking my neck out on the line when trying to you know, get a particular bill across the line. 
And then same thing with the acquisitions officials, feeling really confident that you know, sort of the companies that they're betting on have the backing of Congress, have the backing of venture capitalists that can help co-fund some of the projects that they're you know, sort of pursuing. And so, yeah, really proud to have been a part of it with Jacob and you know, look forward to doing this on an annual basis. Yeah, sounds like a great event. Jake, was that FOMO? Was that a little bit of FOMO there? Was, I saw you kind of lean back. It, it, it is FOMO. I didn't get to go, so I feel I feel a little FOMO. I wasn't I, I invited. I sense that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought we invited that. you. I might bad. You invited me to the first one. I didn't get an invite to the second one. See, that's uh, what happens when you can't make the first one. You right. fall off the list. You fall yeah, off that the list. might have been it. Yeah, maybe because you didn't attend the first. We uh, didn't send you the invite for the second. So well, it's not right. because I wasn't interested. So I next, know. for the third one, I'll definitely we'll be. get you for the third one. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good, that is a good pivot to your other job, your other full-time job. And defense tech and out in the Valley, like what are the, some of the other things that are interest to you right now that, that are really exciting? Part of why I'm so grateful to work at a you know platform like Founders Fund is that you know, they're heavily encouraging of or supportive of incubating companies, especially in areas where you uh, have a strong thesis around that you can continue to invest around beyond just the incubation. And so, you know, a part of my sort of pitch to the firm around incubating Varda was, hey, you know, sort of having a venture capitalist uh, in this type of capital intensive company is going to be highly valuable. And so I can have a huge sort of impact here relative to just like investing in an in-space manufacturing company. But then two, you know, I've sort of predicated my whole career on, you know, betting on this particular wave around aerospace where, you know, sort of decreasing launch costs, increasing cadence is going to enable a lot of business models. And what better way to make sure that I'm at the forefront of deal flow, founders, top choices for who they want to work with than starting one of the most interesting companies in the spaces. And so, um, you know, I think that's played out quite well where I can now point to a multitude of investments across, you know, sort of aerospace defense where uh, the founders have, you know, sort of proactively reached out to me and wanted to work with me given the sort of, you know, pre-existing experience and the track record of, you know, Varda to date. So I probably, you know, uh, in my investing job at Founders Fund, I probably spend about maybe 30%, maybe 40% of my time or investment dollars uh, in the aerospace field. Uh, so it's not, you know, 90%. Uh, and then the remaining 60% are very disparate across financial services, insure tech, consumer hardware like the aid sleep. So definitely wide, you know, sort of wide range of interests. Within aerospace, it's been interesting, um, you know, to see, and I'd say, obviously, if you're wondering about defense, you know, I think Trey is obviously, you know, sort of much more educated on that, but at least within, you know, the aerospace part of defense or generally aerospace, it's been interesting to see the Founders Fund ethos on investing in that we invested a lot in the call 2008 through 11 era where we were, you know, heavy investors in SpaceX, Planet Labs, some of the like sort of generation one companies. And then we effectively went on pause for almost like eight, nine years. And I think a part of that was there were no other interesting business models other than basically like launch internet communications and earth observation, nothing else really made sense to invest in at the time. And then now that you have this like generation one infrastructure, there is a second generation of companies that are worth, you know, investing in. And we've made our sort of handful of bets that we're looking to make into companies like Varda, like Hadrian, which is creating basically automated aerospace machine shops, like Impulse, which is creating basically orbital transfer vehicles and, you know, one or two other sort of uh, currently uh, unannounced names. And, you know, in some ways you may see now Founders Fund go on another basically like eight year pause because as much as we are excited by things like lunar ice mining or asteroid mining, we don't see those as being basically commercially relevant today. We think those are the types of companies that when the now generation two infrastructure gets very well built out, those probably sit within generation three, right? If you look at Varda, there were equivalent companies that were founded in the 2010-11 timeframe the Founders Fund didn't invest in because the business model of Varda in some ways just did not make sense sort of back then. And so, you know, I definitely look forward to one day investing in asteroid mining and lunar ice mining, but it's more likely that that happens, let's say, eight years from today versus, you know, happens today, given that that's when we think it'll be the appropriate time to commercialize. So, yeah, I think we've made a lot of our, you know, sort of most exciting bets in aerospace already to date, and you'll see us mostly doubling down on those versus making a lot of net new ones. 
And then, you know, beyond that, like I said, it's been a lot of time investing outside of aerospace as well and find that, you know, there's just lessons to be learned in a lot of industries that help apply. And I'm definitely starting to obviously get more and more intrigued by the biopharma world, given that, you know, through Varda, I've gotten to learn a lot about it or been had to learn in order to, you know, make the company, you know, sort of survive. And so uh, I'm hoping to spend a little bit more time in terrestrial pharmaceutical manufacturing uh, type technology and investments. Awesome. We're, we're getting a little short on time. Jake, you want to uh, you want to take the reins here for a little lightning round? Before lightning round, I think we should address the fact that Delian, you just got your pilot's license. Is that right? Yeah, it was about like uh, two and a half weeks ago now. And then uh, I had to get my high performance endorsement for the plane that I wanted to fly. And this past weekend, I actually flew 12 and a half hours total from like Thursday afternoon to Sunday afternoon. So quickly got excited and flew a lot of hours. <laughs> where, where are you flying out of? Miami? Uh, uh, for the summer, I'm here uh, in Los Angeles uh, as we're uh, operating our first you know, sort of spacecraft mission. So uh, the plane is actually based out of Torrance. And then uh, on Labor Day weekend, I'm going to go fly across the country. Well, congratulations on your pilot's license. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to uh, take to the skies. I think uh, we have at this point, I think like five or six pilots uh, at Varda, including my co-founder. So it's definitely a uh, shared passion amongst several of the team members. And it's always fun when we're flying in for Air Force meetings and uh, the Air Force generals all come in on commercial jet airliners and all the Varda you know, engineers come in on our own little planes. It definitely, I think, makes the right impression on who they're entrusting for the future of you know, hypersonic technologies. It's the right, the right group of space cowboys. Good first impression. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Quick lightning round. So these will just be a few questions. Uh, not yes or no necessarily, but, you know, pick, pick one of two options. All right. Investor or founder? Founder. <laughs> All right. Elon or Jack? Elon. <laughs> All right. All right. The least favorite bestie on the All In podcast? Oh, Jason. Oh. Oh, I can't stand sacks, but all right, Jason. Fine. Oh, come on. Yeah, <laughs> unquestionable. Sorry. I mean, I, I, Jason, I love you. definitely my least favorite. <laughs> well, he does have to talk the most. You know, he's leading the gaggle. So yeah, yeah. I, I give him a little bit of a pass for that. Yeah. That's right. He's got to moderate. You, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. All right. Fly a fighter jet or fly in space? Fly in space. Tough call, though, but fly in space. You could have picked the U2, and then it's like kind of both kinda at the same way. time. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Or the, uh, oh my gosh, I'm, what is the, um, I should know the name of this. Wow, I'm blanking. What's the space plane? Um, what the heck is the space plane? Is it the, the like, X1B? Oh, yeah, the X1B. There we go. Yeah, the X1B is what I really should have chosen. Just a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that's, that's pretty sexy. All right, Ukraine, more or less support? I'm generally on the side of, yeah, more support. I think I subscribe to the, uh, you know, Truman philosophy. All right. And then Miami or LA? Miami for everything but aerospace, LA for aerospace. Oh, that's a cop out. That's a cop out. All right. <laughs> so, last so question. Weather, weather is better in Miami Oh than yeah. LA? Oh, my God. So much better. I can't stand LA gloom, like June gloom and the dryness of the like, you know, air here. Look, I'm a uh, Bulgarian, uh, born and bred, 99.9995%, you know, whatever, 5,000 years of genetic optimization for living on the Mediterranean Sea. I'm meant to live in hot, humid weather with delicious feta cheese and uh, tomatoes. And let me tell you, that is not Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, or anywhere but Miami in the United States. The air quality is definitely better in Florida than it is in LA. I'll give you that. It's also thicker air, which uh, makes it a lot more uh, you know fun to fly. <laughs> Last question. This one's a tough one. Teal or Robois? That's a tough one. Um, 
you know, at the end of the day, yeah, obviously, uh, you know, Red Boy, yeah, got to stay true to the uh, the true original mentor. Both Titans, both Titans. Both Titans, both Titans. Both have been hugely influential in how I think about, you know, sort of building companies and life philosophies, but uh, Red Boy has been the, you know, sort of stronger one via osmosis. Nice. Good answer. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for, uh, for the show. Um, almost. Before, uh, if you're still listening, thanks. <laughs> Before you forget about us, take a second and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your stuff. Oh, by the way, five stars on Apple means good. Uh, we actually have a really funny one-star review with a fantastic write-up. Best podcast I've ever seen, one star. <laughs> I have no idea how that happened. Five means good, one means bad. Don't leave us ones, leave us fives. <laughs> oh, Dalian, how can they, uh, people can track you? Twitter, LinkedIn, smoke signals? How, what's the best way to people uh, keep track of VAR and what you're doing? Uh, X.com slash uh, Zivulgar. X.com. We'll have to put a link in the show notes to spell that out for everyone. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's not Twitter, it's X. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how, <laughs> how it sticks. We'll see. He's a great Twitter follow. I will say, can be spicy sometimes. We didn't get to talk to, about your tweets here, but uh, there there are a few uh, that could have could have featured on the podcast. I tried to have some fun on there. <laughs> well, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. That's it. We'll see you. See you guys. Out.